Please take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 2. After coming together last week and seeing how profound prayer is by looking at four distinct facets of prayer this morning, I want to come back and follow up on that text. It is here that Paul, according to the circumstances in Ephesus, he gives these specific instructions on what to pray for. And so this morning I want to build upon last week's message of well-rounded prayer and bring to you a message this morning that I've titled simply, The Content of a Well-Rounded Prayer. And as always, I ask those of you who are able to please stand for the reading of God's word. <clears throat> so 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 2. This is the wrong Bible. That's all right. My version is going to read a little different this morning. 1 Timothy chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. First of all, then, I exhort that petitions and prayers, requests and thanksgivings may be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the full knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the witness for this proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying, as a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Therefore, I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. You may be seated. <clears throat> On a dangerous sea coast where ships, shipwrecks often occur, there stood a life-saving station. The building was simply just a hut. There was only one boat, but there were a few devoted members. And they would keep constant watch over the sea. And with no thought for themselves, they would go out day and night. And they were tirelessly, they would search for the lost. Many of those that were rescued, there were many rescued. But not just from there, but from around the surrounding area. To the point that people wished to become associated with this station to give their time, to give their money, and to give their efforts to support the work of what was taking place because it was having such an impact. New boats were brought in. New crews were trained. And that life-saving station grew. In time, some of the crew became concerned that the station was so crude and poorly equipped that they felt they needed a better place, something a little more comfortable and a place that would provide refuge from those that were rescued from the sea. Emergency cots then were replaced with more comfortable beds. Better furniture was purchased, and the building was enlarged. The station became then a popular gathering place for all of its members. They decorated it beautifully and furnished it exquisitely. Fewer members were now interested in leaving this station. It was so comfortable. They'd rather sit there than go to, to the sea on life-saving missions. 
so they hired surrogates to do the work. They hired other people to go out and look for the, those that were perishing in the sea. They retained the life-saving motive of the club's decorations, and they had a ceremonial lifeboat, which lay in the room where all their club meetings were held. One dark, stormy night, a large ship was wrecked off the coast, and the hired crews brought in boatloads of cold, wet people. They were dirty and sick, obviously from foreign lands, and the station was in chaos. The event was so traumatic that the people decided to build more outbuildings so that they could be constructed and be better equipped for future shipwrecks and that they wouldn't have to experience such a disruption in their main building. Eventually, a rift had developed in the station. Most of the members wanted to discontinue the station's life-saving activities because they were unpleasant. They were a hindrance to their social activities. Some insisted, however, that the rescue was their primary purpose and pointed out that they were indeed called a life-saving station. But the latter ignored that and told them that if they wanted to keep life-saving as their primary purpose, they could go down the coast and begin another life-saving station. Over time, those same individuals fell prey to the same temptations as the first group coming to care more about comfort than rescuing the perishing. And so after a while, a few, remembering their real purpose, left and started another life-saving station up the road. And on and on it went. Today, if you visit that seacoast, you will find a number of impressive life-saving stations along the shore. And yet, sadly, shipwrecks still happen and most people are lost. That parable, believe it or not, is a parable with deep historical roots, dating all the way back to the time of Paul and the coast of Ephesus. What could be described about the people then is the same thing that can be described to use to talk about people today. Paul's concern in Ephesus is the same thing that we see today. Many in churches have forsaken their primary life-saving measures for the sake of their own comfort. I think the first indication of a church's willingness to give up <coughs> such life-saving measures is their willingness to give up corporate prayer. Few churches pray together as a church. I think that actually contributes to the so many divisions that we see where people are led more by their own preferences than actually God's priorities. Because people will fight over their preferences and never give a thought or time to even pray about where the Lord would have them. I also think it contributes to the lack of depth in our relationships. A lack of corporate prayer forsakes the ability to carry one another's burdens, as we see in Galatians 6, 1 through 4. It's unsurprising then that as Paul begins to lay out a direction for the church, he begins here with prayer. Chapter 2 of the letter to 1 Timothy is where Paul begins to outline instructions for how the, to conduct ourselves within the body of Christ. That is, how do we function as the church? Paul begins with the conduct of the church. 
And he begins talking about the conduct of the church in the same way that we would begin talking about the conduct of any individual believer by drawing us to prayer. The words here could be applied to how we pray as individuals and probably should be applied to how we pray as individuals. But the context, what he is writing about is the church as a whole. He has expectations that this letter, though written to Timothy, is going to be read to the entire church in Ephesus. That the entire body will hear about it and therefore begin to implement these guidelines together. Further noted here is when he speaks, he speaks not just to Timothy, but to you all, to everybody. And then he says, I exhort that petitions, prayers, requests, thanksgiving, it's all plural, indicating that it's not just one person praying, but multiple people is in the corporate body of Christ is praying. And so Paul is speaking not to individual prayer, but to corporate prayer. With that in mind this morning, I want us to look upon this text and consider three ways in which the body of Christ comes together to pray. As the text reads in verse 1, First of all, then, I urge the supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving to be made for all people, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. The first thing we learn here is that Christians pray for humanity's peace. Christians pray for humanity's peace. The state of our prayer life is indicative of the state of our spiritual life. A person who has a thriving relationship with the Lord is more likely to devote time to conversing with the Lord. The same is true of any of our relationships. You can gauge the depth of our relationship between, or the relationship between two people even, by just watching and observing their willingness to spend time together. It makes sense then that the same is true for our relationship with God. The more profound our relationship with him, the more willing we are to spend time with him in prayer. Prayer, though, not only serves as an indicator of our relationship with God, what we see here is it's also an indicator of our relationship with others. How we pray, how frequently we pray, and what we pray on behalf of others illustrates our concerns and our care and our compassion for them, which is what we see here. Verse 1 in its entirety reads, First of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. What does that verse mean? It means that all prayers of all types are to be made for all people. The prayers we place before the Lord are not defined by our own interest, but they are laid before God in the interest of others in this case. Neither are they confined to just those in our immediate circle. As an example, we pray not only for our friends and family, we pray for their friends and family. We pray not just for the people we know, but for the people we don't know. It doesn't even matter if they're believer or unbeliever. It says all people. John Kitchen writes, those within the family of God should be held before God with all the promises of God on our lips. Those separated from God and without hope in this world or the next should be our special concern as we call out to God as well. 
Is it any wonder then how Paul can write elsewhere to the Thessalonians to pray continuously or pray without ceasing? To pray all things for all people leaves us with no time to do anything else except pray. By these words, Paul establishes how the church should conduct itself. We see that there is no limit to who or what we should bring before the Lord in prayer. But in praying all things for all people, the text establishes a purpose found in the first part of verse 2. Saying, pray all things for all people, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Remember back to last week and the discussion of these words, supplications, prayers, intercessions, thanksgivings. Each word expresses a different facet a prayer. But they're all bound together by something in common. Each one was an expression of a person's greatest spiritual need, calling upon the Lord to fulfill that need, interceding on behalf of others that their needs would be fulfilled, their greatest spiritual need, and then thanking the Lord when he has indeed fulfilled those spiritual needs. And what is man's greatest need? Peace. Specifically peace with God. Paul suggests here that the body of Christ come together to pray, specifically to pray for humanity's peace. There are two words that convey a calm lifestyle given. Depending on the version that you're reading, it may say tranquil or calm or quiet. The English Standard Version that I'm using uses the words peaceful and quiet. Peaceful and quiet, those appear to be synonyms. Those appear to be words that are meant to convey the very same thing. But in actuality, they're intentionally placed together to convey two complementary aspects of life. They are conveying things that are very different and yet work together. Peaceful captures the idea of peace and tranquility. Literally, to have a quietness from the inside, or sorry, a quietness from the outside disturbances. It's being free from the chaos of the world, so that no matter what is going on in the world, I'm not running around crazy, but I am at peace. Quiet, though, conveys a quietness from within. We might delineate these two words by saying inner peace and outer peace. The person with inner peace is captured by 1 Peter 3, 4, urging, let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. The prayer for humanity's peace is a prayer that one is free from turmoil inside and outside. It does not mean the absence of conflict. It does not mean that there's not some situations or some affliction taking place. Paul certainly was not free from calamity. Simply read Acts 18 and Acts chapter 19 and you'll read of the animosity that Paul encountered. And you'll read about how he had to flee for his very own life. And we see then that Paul's life was not absent of affliction or conflict. But though he faced difficult circumstances, he had an attitude, both inward and outward, of peace. 
His inward attitude of peace reflected an attitude of outward peace that came from simply trusting the Lord. A peaceful and quiet life is not a prayer request here for personal comfort. What we see, actually, is it's a prayer for godliness. Look again at the text. I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. The prayer for a peaceful and quiet life is meant to lead somebody to be able to live in godliness and to live with dignity. 2 Timothy 3.12 warns Christians, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Once again, it shows us that peace is not the absence of conflict. In fact, those seeking after, after godliness are going to face persecution, it, it tells us. But the idea here is that a godly person isn't just moving from crisis to crisis to crisis. Certainly things go wrong. Sometimes they go, go wrong a lot. But their demeanor conveys a confidence in God, displaying both godly character and godly respect. I didn't ask permission to use this, but since Judy shared her prayer request this morning about everything that's gone on in these past few weeks, I'm going to use this, and I hope you'll forgive me if you're offended, but I don't think you will be. <laughs> when I called her this week to ask how things were going on, what I was struck by is she listed everything going on was that she was not a lady moving from crisis to crisis. I was struck by her peaceful demeanor and attitude. What that taught me or what that told me was somebody who had confidence in God. That's the very person we're talking about here. This is the prayer request that we see, that despite everything going on out here, that we, we submit it to the Lord and, and trust him and have peace internally and externally. And then we see dignity. Titus is urged by Paul to show himself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in his teaching to show integrity and dignity, he writes. In that way, Titus becomes a model for all people. 1 Timothy 3.4. These are the very characteristics that identify in 1 Timothy the, the very ones who are qualified for eldership. One who is at peace and godly and with dignity. But based on what we read about the false teachers in Ephesus, their character was quite the opposite. The only godliness they seemed to convey was for personal gain. But godliness, as one commentator notes, is, serves to describe the whole of the Christian existence as a vibrant interplay between the knowledge of God and the observable life that emerges from that knowledge. Here, the prayer the church engages in together serves the purpose of bringing people to God. It is a prayer for humanity's deepest spiritual need. Peace. Peace which comes only from knowing God. And that's the same need for every person, whether believer or unbeliever. Prayer of this type can only be born out of one thing, a love, the love of God and a love of others. One cannot pray this way unless first that person loves God. 
Because one who loves God will pray this way because they desire to see the Lord glorified. And they desire to see him glorified, not by seeing him make our lives comfortable, but by seeing people content and peaceful in him, living in such a way that shows exactly who God is in times of calm and times of crisis. But second, one cannot pray this way if they don't first have a love of others. Remember that the verses here say pray for all people. That includes those who frustrate us, those to whom we disagree with, or or even those who persecute us. This prayer for all people has no limitations on who we should be praying for. Prayer for even those who oppose us can only be driven by a genuine love for people then. Specifically, a genuine godly love for them. If we want to know whether or not we really genuinely love someone, probably need to just ask ourselves, am I willing to bring them before the Lord in prayer? Specifically, are we willing to pray that their lives would be peaceful and quiet, that they may know and live for God? As a body of Christ, we pray for humanity's peace. The text says pray for all people. The Apostle Paul singles out some particular groups of people, though. Once again, first of all, he says, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that they may lead a peaceful and quiet life, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. And so with these words, I want you to note, second, that churches pray for leaders' priorities. Leaders' priorities. Though Christians should pray for all people, special attention is given to leaders here, to kings and to all of those in high positions, it says. This is a biblical concept that was established long ago, to pray for leaders, even poor leaders, who act contrary to God's godliness. Ezra exemplifies this in Ezra chapter 9. Those who are in high positions of leadership are in need of prayer because they have a direct influence on the Lord's work on earth and on people's ability to live in godliness and dignity. Tertullian of the first century understands this, that people are subject to God, but they fall under leaders who may not want them to follow God. And so he writes... If you think that we have no interest in the emperor's welfare, or president's, or king's welfare, whoever you want to say, look into our literature, read the word of God. We ourselves do not keep it concealed, and in fact, it is in some cases by chance handed over to outsiders. Learn from this literature that it has been enjoined upon us, that our charity may more and more abound to pray to God, even for our enemies, and to beg for blessing for our persecutors. We have a vested interest in praying for our leaders because their decisions, their policies, their stances not only make it easier or more difficult to follow God, but their policies and their decisions can create or destroy the peaceful and quiet lives that enable us to live in godliness and dignity. Leaders and governments and officials 
they do not get to determine whether or not we obey God. That's not what I'm saying. They have no influence on our relationship with the Lord. But it is easier to fixate on an attitude of godliness and dignity and develop those in times of calmness rather than times of chaos. It is true that trials often develop godly character. We see that in James chapter 1. But when do those trials and when does that chaos usually create that godly character? Usually after the fact. When we've had time to dwell upon what took place and learn from it. But when are we better able to focus on developing a deeper relationship with the Lord? In the calm or in the chaos? Ideally, it would be in the calm. Although usually that's when we become most complacent. When is it easier to remember to spend time in the word or to speak God to God in prayer? When things are calm, when we can develop a routine and keep coming before him. Governments and, and leaders can influence that. The prayer request for leaders here is exactly the same prayer request for all people. I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for kings and for all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. That word life there refers to physical life. It is a prayer that the physical life would be limited from undue hassle and resistance and burdens. I find this fascinating. Because these are verses on prayer. But in these verses on prayer, we actually find the purpose of government, which is to create an environment in which people can live in godliness. In that way, actually churches and government, though they may function very differently, have a similar ambition, or should have a similar ambition, to see God glorified by enabling people to obey him. We could pray for leaders' salvation, and we should pray that way. But if that is not the case, then we should pray that they would at least have the knowledge and wisdom and power to create a culture for God to be glorified and the gospel to go forth. Unfortunately, most governments act more and more contrary to this. While living in Argentina, I found myself frequently frustrated by their processes. To pay a simple bill took hours because you had to show up and just stand in line for so long. To get in to see the doctor, most people had to get up at 5 a.m. And, and be at the door at 6 a.m., though it didn't open till 8 a.m. And that's not just the doctor, that was any process. But then they would hope that after standing in line, <coughs> that they would actually get an appointment for that day. And then they'd have to wait around until they were called, which could be all day. I don't understand how people can get things done. If you have to make just a simple doctor's appointment or a simple errand and it takes an all day thing, how do you work? One time we didn't receive our electric bill. And by the time we realized it hadn't come, it, the due date had passed by two or three days. It wasn't much. In order to make it right, we had to take that bill and take it down to the electric company. 
And then they had to print out an updated bill because there was a fee involved, which I understand. And then attach that to the original bill. So after standing in line to get them to do that, then we take the bill and take it down the street and stand in line again, a much longer line, in order to pay the bill. And then after we paid that bill, we take it back with the receipt back to the electric company and stand in line again to show them that we paid the bill so that they can enter it into their system. It's aggravating because literally the fee was like eight cents. It cost more for the paper and the ink and the lady's time to print it. But it was cumbersome. But see, it's policies like that, and I, that the government enacts and creates these unnecessary hassles and, and burdens the people. And that hinders their ability to focus on God. I, and I hope you see the connection I'm trying to make. I'm not worried about inconveniences. Inconveniences happen. What I'm talking about is when governments influence daily living on a routine basis so that our lifestyles then are nothing but a hindrance because it distracts from our time to be able to engage with the Lord. Those hours in line I could have spent reading God's word, sharing with somebody else. I could have done that in line too, but I probably didn't if I remember right. I could have spent time reading though or praying. These are the undue hassles that leaders can create. And so they become a hindrance rather than a help in one's pursuit of God. For reference, it's not just governments that do that. We do that as spouses. We can do that as parents. Employers do it. We make it harder for people to follow God. But the application of our text is government. It's true that government cannot save us. And we should be cautious that we don't confuse the idea that government creates godliness or regulates it. But we should also recognize them as institutions that can create an environment in which God, where people can grow closer to God and that there's Christ-like growth. As Newt Larson says, that when government operates well, it is a significant ally to the gospel. It's easy to hate our leaders, especially when they're not aligned with Christian theology. It becomes very difficult to pray for such people. In our prayers, it may be easy to leave them out, especially if they're hostile to us. But think about what Paul is saying here. He writes at a time when Nero is emperor. And just a year or so earlier, Nero has used the Christians as a scapegoat in order to save his own, his own hide and his own time on the throne, his own political position. The result is increased hatred and persecution towards the Christians. And under his leadership, Paul would be put to death. And yet Paul still singles out officials like Nero for prayer, calling on believers to come together in a time of corporate prayer for leaders' priorities. And so we pray for humanity's peace. We pray for leaders' priorities. Verse 3 goes on to say, this is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior. And so I want you to know, finally, we pray for God's pleasure. And by that, I don't mean that God's depressed or that he's without joy, so we have to pray that he's comforted. What the text indicates is that we bring our supplications and our prayers and our intercessions and our thanksgivings to God 
and it is pleasurable to him. This verse changes how we frequently think of prayer. Often considering it to be something for our pleasure. Maybe we submit our request to him and we're pleased if he answers them. But prayer we find here is about pleasing God. Because a prayer is about God. At a basic level, we know that the Lord desires a relationship with his people. Revelation 3.20 shows us that when it says, Behold, I, God, stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. That picture is, is God desiring a relationship with people, with the same ones who would call him Lord. And so he stands at the door knocking, waiting for them. He wants a relationship. It's no surprise then that prayer is pleasing to God because it fulfills that opportunity. It fulfills that desire to have a relationship with him by creating an intimate conversation. But the verse here identifies a different, more specific reason that prayer pleases God. It says, because it is good. Prayer is a good thing. Who could argue with that? But that word good doesn't just mean, well, it's a nice thing. It means that it's morally right. Prayer is an activity of a moral person. It is the behavior of one who seeks to obey the Lord. We often confuse the purpose of prayer, I think. We treat prayer as a means to get God to do our will. I think prayer is actually a means for us to do God's will. We may pray that something occurs. Maybe we pray for a new job. We pray for someone to be healed. But appended to every one of those requests should be, if it be your will, Lord. So that he's not bound to do our will, but rather he's still doing his will, and we just are willing to accept it then and recognize that he's at work somehow. And if it's it's not his will, then we pray that we would understand why and, and learn from it and have understanding and still grow closer to it. So prayer, then, is not about getting what we want, It's rather about us giving God what he wants, and that's us being conformed to his image and drawing closer to him. This is why prayer is good or morally right, because it causes us to seek after the Lord and to do his will, which is pleasing to him. I think there is a connection between our willingness to do the right thing and our prayer life. If we're struggling to do the will of God or to obey him, It's probably an indication that we're struggling to spend sufficient time with him in prayer. Notice something then, though, also here. If prayer is about pleasing God, then prayer is an act of worship. Every time we pray, we are engaging in worship of God, which means that every time we don't pray, we have missed an opportunity or we've neglected an opportunity to worship God. After we got back from the IFCA convention a week and a half ago, one of the things I was asked to do was perform a funeral three days later. The dynamics of that family were very complicated. The death was uniquely difficult, and and most of the people there were unbelievers. The things that I was going to say to the family, they were timely, they were applicable, but they were also difficult. And as unbelievers, I wasn't sure how they would respond. Figured it would go either very well or very poorly. Thankfully, it went incredibly well. Like any message, though, only time will really tell how effective it was. 
I tell you that for a reason, though. Despite how well that funeral went, the one thing I forgot to do was to open in prayer. I had someone lined up to close in prayer, but I forgot to open in prayer. Despite the fact that two days later, my sermon was the one I gave you last week on the importance of prayer. I missed an opportunity to worship God in front of unbelievers at that. Prayer is good, bringing pleasure to God. That's actually the standard for any form of worship. Whether we worship, worship God through prayer or through our singing or through our teaching, or even if we're worshiping him through the Lord's Supper, the standard is whether or not it is acceptable to God, whether it is pleasing to him. And so we pray not just for our pleasure, but we pray for God's pleasure. When we speak of prayer, rarely do we speak of it this way, as a form of worship. But the words that Paul writes to Timothy here, he does so in, in, in such a way that prayer is now identified as an act of worship, in which we are given direction to pray for humanity's peace, for leaders' priorities, and for God's pleasures. The letter is written directly to Timothy, but Paul begins chapter 2 by outlining how the church should function. First Timothy, together with the second letter to Timothy and Titus, they provide the clearest instructions on how the church is organized and how it should conduct itself so that it may glorify God. And the very first aspect that we see outlined is prayer. But Paul's not merely writing about how you and I pray, just as individual followers of Christ. He's urging the church to pray together, corporately, as a body of Christ. These are instructions here about how the entire church prays together. There was a time when prayer occupied greater importance in the life of the church. Seeing its relevance and understanding its seriousness, prayer was placed in a position of prominence. To the many points that most churches devoted one night a week, whether it be Sunday or Wednesday or Thursday evening, just to a time of corporate worship through prayer. But in the last 20 to 25 years, those nights have been pretty much canceled. And ask why, and the answer is that, well, people quit showing up. Prayer is not as important, and it seems inconvenient then for people to tithe a portion of their time to a development of the relationship with the Lord, despite the fact that that time was given to them by the Lord in the first place. In reality, most churches have given up praying together at all. Rarely is there a time of corporate worship of God through prayer. Prayer is an individual act something we should all engage in personally and privately. But we also see here that it is a corporate act, something that we are commanded to engage in. And so let me ask you this. If people are unwilling to devote time to prayer, despite the fact that it's commanded to them, how do churches cultivate a worship of God through corporate prayer? I've seen churches try. I've heard most people agree that it's important. But that hasn't changed people's willingness to participate. So how do we cultivate worship of God through corporate prayer?
If prayer is an expression of our relationship with God and an expression of our relationship with others, as I said earlier, maybe we need to resolve to take more serious our responsibility to engage with God and with others in prayer. And we can be assured by what we read here that when we do pray, it is good and pleasing to the Lord. So let's pray. Our Father God, indeed, you are pleased by when we honor and follow you, Lord. Father, you are worthy of all honor and worship, Lord. And Father, I pray that as we look upon this text and as we think about the discipline of prayer, about this grace that you've given us, this way in which we can commune with you and have time with you and fellowship with you, Lord. Father, I pray that we would be convicted that indeed our prayer time is not just about us, but it is an act of worship of you. It is a response to who you are. It is a response to what you've done, Lord. And so, Father, I pray that our prayers would reflect that. May we be a people of well-rounded prayer, offering supplications and intercessions and thanksgivings, Lord. And may that be a means for us to draw near to each other and near to you. We thank you for all that you do. We do thank you for this discipline of prayer. It's in your holy and precious name we pray. Amen.